Thank you for accessing this audio resource from Glad Tidings Church. This is Pastor Tim Rice. I hope you enjoy the message and receive some benefit from it. If you do, please let us know. Send your comments to info at gladtidings.church. Now, here's this week's message. Tonight we're going to continue our series on the cities of refuge. And um, last week I did a kind of an introduction on the cities of refuge, made some general points about the cities of refuge. And so if you weren't here last Wednesday night, you liked that introductory material, it's on the app as well on our website. You can go and listen to that. Um, But let me just do a quick review because what we're going to do over the next four weeks, including tonight, we're going to go through four of the cities of refuge and uh, take a tour of the four of them and learn some lessons from each one of them. But let me just do a quick review on the cities of refuge. You might remember that the cities of refuge were cities that were designated in Israel and they were designated as um, sanctuary cities for those in Israel who had committed what we call manslaughter. That is, they had killed someone without intent. They had not premeditated it, but they killed that person without intent. And so if, if a person in Israel, um, uh, a Hebrew or a foreigner, if they were living in Israel um, and they killed another person without intent, then they could flee to one of these cities in order to escape the avenger of blood. Remember we talked about that the system of justice in those days was very is like the wild, wild west. So if you killed my family, one of my family members, then it fell to me as the next of kin that I would avenge their blood by killing you or killing one of your family members, and that's how blood feuds developed. And uh, so these cities of refuge were provided as a, as a means of escaping that kind of bloodlust in, in, ancient, in the ancient days. These cities were governed, you remember, they were governed, they were managed by the Levites. They were cities that were given to the Levites, the priestly clan in Israel, given to them, and they were embedded in uh, the territories of the different tribes of, of Israel. But they were, they were managed by the Levites, and the Levites became sort of the early judicial system. They tried cases, they tried um, uh, criminals, and they tried these cases of manslaughter to see if, in fact, they were committed without intent or if they were murder. If they were murder, then they were judged as murder and that person was punished appropriately. Their life was taken. Murder was a capital offense. Um, but if it was deemed that they were that they were killed without intent, then that person could find sanctuary in that city of refuge and live in that city. So uh, this represented in the ancient world a a pretty um, important, significant development in judicial restraint, remember? Because that was the point, was judicial restraint. They wanted justice to be done, but they they wanted to end this kind of bloodlust. And so remember that I made the point last week that these cities of refuge really, they, they represent not perfectly, we can push analogies too far, um, so not perfectly, but these cities illustrate in, in very significant ways God's grace to, to us. Um, remember I pointed out that they're an acknowledgement that we live in a broken world, and because we live in a... Um, a world that is broken is broken because of why? Sin. 
not necessarily just our personal sin, but because sin has entered into the world, death entered into the world because of sin. And so these cities um, represent uh, an acknowledgement that we live and we sometimes suffer in a world that has been broken because of sin. And God's law demands justice, but God's love desires to show mercy. And because God desires to show mercy rather than punishing us as, as we deserve, I mean, as we all deserve punishment, right? But rather than just punishing us as we deserve, God has made provision for us to be saved. And that's what these cities of refuge represent. God's provision to shelter someone uh, from death. And so you remember when they, they showed up there and they were cleared and it was found that they were um, not guilty of murder, but they were guilty of manslaughter, then they could remain there and they could remain there until the high priest died because uh, what happened was their sin, their guilt was transferred to the high priest. And so when the high priest died, their sin was gone and atoned for it, and then they could leave that city of refuge and resume their life, go back to their homeland, wherever that was. So remember, I made the point that, that, that Jesus is our high priest. And, and so these cities represent God's grace that he has provided to us through Jesus Christ, and that if we will run to him and if we will abide in him, if we will remain in Jesus Christ, then how many knows we can be saved. Amen? So these cities represent God's grace. And there were six of these cities, um, three of them on the east side of the Jordan, three of them on the west side of the Jordan, and that was so that nobody was ever too far away from God's grace. No one was ever outside of the range of God's ability to show mercy and grace to them if, if they would run to these cities of refuge. So two of these cities are not mentioned again in the Bible beyond their designation as a city of refuge. That's uh, Bezer and Golan. And that was probably due to the fact, I pointed out last time, that they very quickly um, were conquered by enemies of Israel, and so they did not remain in Israel's possession in, in their control for very long. So that leaves four of these cities, Ramoth Gilead, the only city that remained on the east side of the Jordan, and then there was Kadesh Naphtali, then there was, and, and that was in the northern part of the western side of the Jordan. Then there was Shechem, which was in the central part, and then Hebron in the south on the western part of the Jordan. So we're going to begin our tour of these four cities in Kadesh Naphtali, which is located, as you might guess, in the territory of Naphtali. Um, and uh, it's in the northern part of Israel. We'll see that in just a second when we look at a map in the region that came to be called Galilee. We're familiar with Galilee because that's where Jesus did a lot of his ministry was in the region, the area of Galilee. Kadesh actually means, the word Kadesh means sanctuary. Therefore, the name of this city, this city of refuge, is, is actually just a description of its function. That is, that it was a sanctuary city. It was the city of refuge that was located in the territory of Naphtali. Now, there's not much mentioned about uh, Kadesh uh, Naphtali in, in the Bible. And in fact, 
Because of that, its exact location is kind of disputed um, among scholars, but we do know that it was probably most likely located near the southwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And as I said, we'll see that in just one second. This city, Kadesh Naphtali, had two uh, main claims to fame, and I don't know if you can call it fame or not, but uh, one, this was the, one of the first cities that was conquered and that was exiled, the people of which were exiled when Israel was overrun by Assyria. Assyria, God judged Israel by allowing the king of Assyria to come in and conquer Israel. Kadesh Naphtali was one of the first cities that fell to the Assyrians and the inhabitants were exiled to Assyria. The second one, and the main one, really, what we're going to talk about tonight, is that it was the home of a man named Barak. And Barak was a man who figures prominently in, in one of the episodes in the book of Judges. He was not the judge, but he, was, he figures prominently into the story of one of the judges of of Israel. Now, you know, we're going to go to Judges chapter 4 in just one second. Very quickly, you know, the book of Judges is a story about a period, is, is a narrative of a period in Israel's history during which Israel went through a series of judges, men and women, as we'll see tonight, that judged Israel. And God raised these judges up at certain times in the nation of Israel when they needed deliverance. From, from their enemies. And so the book of Judges is actually a, a cycle of subjugation. So what happens is God delivers Israel from, sub, from their enemies. Israel, um, Israel rejoices for a little while, and then eventually they began to decline and rebel against God. And as they rebel against God, they fall back into subjugation from a foreign power. They repent. They cry out to God. God raises up a judge. judge delivers them. They rejoice. And uh, then the cycle repeats itself over and over. Well, uh, very early in the book of Judges is this story about Barak and uh, in particular about Deborah, the judge Deborah. And so we're going to read Judges chapter 4 tonight. And, and I feel like we, we need to read pretty much the entire chapter. So you just, if you have your Bibles open or if you want to follow along on the screen, do so as I read tonight. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You see that cycle is repeating after Ehud died. He was the previous judge. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of uh, Lipidoth, was judging Israel at that time, and she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came to her for judgment. And she sent and she summoned Barak, the son of Abonom, from Kadesh, Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, 
taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Berak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up, at his, uh, went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak at Zananim, uh, which is near Kadesh. And when Sisera was told that ba- Barak, the son of Abinom, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Haroseth, uh, Harosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth, Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her and and into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say, No. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, and then she went softly into him, or went softly to him, and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground, while he was laying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, "Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking." So he went out. He went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Now, I'll let you know this, uh, this evening is kind of weird, I guess, but this is one of my favorite judges' story. <laughs> in fact, I sometimes uh, tease Abigail. And, and well, this part is true. One of the names that uh, I was considering naming a little girl, if we had a little girl, was J.L. And uh, now that she knows what J.L. does, she said, I'm so glad y'all didn't name me J.L. <laughs> J.L. is the hero of this story, or the heroine, we should say, uh, of this story, because she's the one that actually gets the glory that belonged to Barak. Uh, she gets the glory for killing Sisera, the commander 
um, of Jabin, uh, of the Canaanites. So she's the one that she and, and Deborah also, Deborah the, the, the judge, get the glory, although Barak was the one whom God, God had commanded to confront Jabin. Barak was the one that God had told to confront um, Jabin. Uh, but instead, Jael and Deborah get the glory. We'll talk more about that in just a few moments. But first of all, let me clarify the setting, which requires just a little bit of geography and a little bit of history. All right, so here's the map. And uh, I'm sorry if this is, again, it's the same map as last week, but I drew, drew, drew a little diamond on it to help you see some of the geography uh, a little bit. Um, Hazor, Jabin, is the king of Hazor, which is located at that northern point, northernmost point there of that diamond, right next to the little lake. And I cannot remember the name of the lake. Hillel, I think it is, uh, up above the Sea of Galilee. So Hazor is up in the northern part of, of Galilee. Um, it had been, Hazor had been conquered. This is important. Hazor had been conquered by Joshua during the conquest. Joshua and Israel had already conquered Hazor uh, once before. However, not all of the inhabitants had been totally displaced out of the land of Canaan. We know that from the book of Judges. We know that from the book of Joshua, that many of the inhabitants had not yet been displaced out of the promised land. And so although Hazor had been conquered, not all of the inhabitants had been displaced. In fact, in this case, Jabin remained um, or, or Jabin became the king, the leader of a vast contingent of Canaanites that had not been completely conquered or displaced in, in the land. They were under the rule of Jabin, and his seat of power was, uh, was Hazor. His commander, the commander of his armies, was Sisera, and Sisera lived in Herosheth Hagoyim, which is actually about in the vicinity of the left point of that diamond. So quite a ways away from the seat of power, he's located um, by the sea. And so what you can begin to see here is that this is a, this is a large, it's a widespread confederation of Canaanites that have assembled and have begun um, to vex the people of, of Israel. Now, Kadesh is located uh, about midway down, about where that line on the right-hand side where it bends, there at the lower point of the Sea of Galilee. And so that forms kind of a triangle, if you'll notice that. But Deborah, who is the judge of all of the, over all of Israel, is located down by Bethel, which is the lower part of that triangle. And so what I'm trying to point out is that this is not just a small area in which Jabin and Sisera are operating. This is a large area in Israel. In fact, some Bible historians say this is, this is probably the first, in the book of Judges, this is the first um, large-scale um, ex existential threat to Israel. So this is more than just a regional, small regional army. This is a, a large army that is affecting not just Kadesh, not just Naphtali, but is influencing the entire nation of, of Israel. This is an existential threat that has developed 
within the promised land and is threatening to, um, to destroy Israel. And so what happens is naturally the, the people of Israel begin to cry out to God because Jabin is oppressing them and, and following up on what we talked about last week, remarkably God hears the cry of his people and God makes provision for his people and uh, when they cry out to God, God makes provision for them and God delivers them from Jabin. Isn't God good? Despite, again, that's the, kind of the theme of these cities of refuge is God's mercy and God's grace. That although Israel was in this predicament because of their own sin and their own rebellion against God, nevertheless, God hears their cry for help and God hears their cry for mercy. And in spite of their sin, um, in spite of their disobedience, God delivers them. He is merciful and he makes provision for Israel. He delivers them from Jabin. So um, two key points come out of that as they relate to these, again, these cities of refuge. Number one, salvation comes to God's people when we cry out to him for mercy. We live, in a, we live in a broken world, a sinful world, but when we call out to God, when we cry to him for mercy, aren't you glad that he hears our cry and he saves us when we cry out to him? Amen? Number two, it's, it's significant that salvation comes from where? It comes from Kadesh. It comes from that city of refuge, that sanctuary city, that there is a man God has placed in Kadesh. His name is Barak, and salvation comes out of the city that God had established to be a sanctuary for his people. But there's a problem uh, with Barak, and we've, we mentioned it already. When Deborah, who is the judge of Israel, summons Barak, she says to him, in essence, she says, has not the Lord commanded you, go and gather your men at Mount Tabor, and I will draw Sisera out to meet you, and I will give him into your hand. So when she says this, there's, there's some question here as to, whether, as to whether or not it means that God had already previously commanded Barak to confront Jabin. Has not God commanded you? So the construction there seems to indicate that Deborah is calling him into account and saying, hey, God has already commanded you. God has previously told you. You know that he has commanded you to go out and confront uh, Barak. So that's what it it seems to be from the translation as we read it uh, in our Bibles. However, to be fair uh, to Barak, uh, this may have been, this may have been the first time that he's receiving that command from the Lord and that he's receiving it from Deborah. So she calls him to her and she's prophesying over him and saying, hey, the Lord is commanded, hasn't the Lord commanded you to go and confront um, Jabin, the king of the Canaanites. So we're not sure whether God had previously commanded uh, Barak to go or he was receiving this information for the first time. What is not 
disputable is that whether he had already been commanded or whether he's just now receiving these instructions from the Lord, Barak, Barak hesitates when he receives this word from the Lord. Rather than obeying without any delay, without obeying, uh, instead of obeying without any doubts or any delays, uh, Barak responds and he says uh, to Deborah, if you'll go with me, I'll go. I'll go if you will go with me. So there's two things that are obvious from this exchange between Deborah and Barak, and that is that, number one, Barak was a man who, who already commanded um, an army of other men. So she says, hasn't the Lord already commanded you? Take your men and go and confront. So Barak is a military commander. He is a tribal leader. And so he has, already he has an army. And then the second thing that is obvious is that Barak up to this point, although he has an army up to this point, Barak has failed to do anything about the Canaanites that are oppressing Israel. So Barak is a man in Kadesh who has an army at his disposal, and yet up to this point, he has failed to do anything about the threat that Jabin, the king of the Canaanites, and Sisera, his commander, has done. So whether he has neglected to do anything, he received a command from the Lord, and he failed to obey that command, or whether... Or whether he fails to take the lead when Deborah tells him about God's command, Barak fails to take the initiative. He fails to lead himself and to do something about Jabin and his massive Canaanite army. And because of that, that's when Deborah says, because you have failed to take the initiative, because you have failed to do this yourself because you have refused to obey God's command. You will not receive the glory for delivering Israel. That honor would go to Deborah and more specifically it would go to Jael who kills Sisera. And there's something very important for us there tonight that I want to point out in the next uh, few moments. Barak played a important role in the deliverance of Israel. I mean, he, he did agree to go. He said, if you'll go with me, I'll go. So he did agree to go. He did take his men. He did assemble an army from Naphtali, from Zebulun, and from other, um, from other tribes as well. He does lead that army against the Canaanites. He does win a significant victory against the Canaanites. God definitely uses him in that victory. So Barak plays an important role in the deliverance of Israel. It was just not, it was not a leading role. He did not initiate that himself. In fact, he had done nothing about the Canaanite army that was threatening all of Israel. In fact, if you look back in your Bibles um, at Judges chapter 5, and Judges chapter 5 is actually a celebration song. It's a song of praise 
uh, that Deborah and Barak sing after this victory is won. But let me just draw your attention to the first couple of verses. Then, De- then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinom, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Do you notice what that song says first? That the leaders took the lead in Israel. That's, that's not uh, Barak. He did not take the lead. Who did he allow to take the lead? Deborah. If you'll go with me, then I'll go. That the people offered themselves willingly. willingly. Now, was that Barak? Sure. Barak offered himself willingly. God used him in the deliverance of Israel. But Barak failed to take the lead. Barak refused to initiate and to take any action himself. He had to be, he had to be reminded what the Lord had commanded him to do. He had to be told what to do. And, and, only, and only then, he only did what God told him to do only after Deborah took the lead in the situation. In fact, um, Barak had sat back for how many years? 20 years, the Bible says. For 20 years, Jabin, and the king of the Canaanites, and Sisera, the commander of the Canaanites, for 20 years they oppressed uh, Israel. And so what I want you to see this evening is that for at least 20 years, Barak had sat back and had done nothing about the Canaanites um, that were threatening Israel. He had sat back as Jabin had amassed um, a huge fighting force. Remember, Joshua had already, had already conquered Hazor. They were, he didn't wipe them all out, but he had conquered Hazor. And what had happened was the Canaanites had built slowly over time, had built their strength back up to the point that now they had an army that threatened Israel and oppressed uh, Israel. So Jabin, I mean, uh, Barak had sat back for 20 years and had done nothing about the Canaanite threat. Now compare that to Jael. Jael, as I said, she's the hero of the story. She's the heroine of the story. When the opportunity presented itself to Jael, what did she do? She didn't hold back, did she? She didn't wait for somebody else to take the lead. When the opportunity presented itself, she took action and she killed Sisera, the commander of the armies that had been oppressing Israel for all of those years. So compare Barak to Jael. Jael took action. When the opportunity presented itself, she killed Sisera. Whereas Barak had held back for 20 years, at least 20 years, or uh, we don't know exactly how many years, but he had held back and had done nothing. He had, he had given himself willingly after Deborah took the lead, but he didn't initiate 
He had taken no action on his own. He had allowed Jabin to grow in strength, Sisera uh, to torment the land of Israel. And nevertheless, remember, God saved Israel. God delivered Israel from the Canaanites. But the question that, that I want to ask tonight is, could, could that have been avoided if Barak had, could Barak have avoided the crisis altogether by confronting Jabin and confronting Sisera at some point before that? When they began to build their power up, what if, what if Barak had taken the initiative then when he saw Sisera began to his campaign against Israel? What if he had done something when he saw Jabin return to Hazor and set up his throne in Hazor? What if he had done something to confront Jabin before Jabin had the opportunity um, to bring Israel back into subjugation? We'll never know that because he did nothing. He did, he, he did nothing until he was made to do something. <laughs> And because he did nothing, he perpetuated that cycle of subjugation in the nation uh, of Israel. And how many knows that that cycle that, that we see in the book of Judges, that that is, that is a cycle that if we're not careful can, can repeat itself in our life as, as well. Aren't you glad that the Bible says whom the Son sets free is free indeed? Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ has set us free from the bondage of, of sin? So Jesus Christ has set us free. But let me tell you tonight, I'll tell you something that you guys already know because you're a Wednesday night crowd. The devil doesn't give up. The devil is always looking for opportunities to enslave us and to work his way back into our life and exert influence in our life. And if we're not careful, what, what has previously been conquered in our life, the territory that has been conquered in our life, if we're not vigilant and if we're not careful, then how many knows if we do nothing and how many knows that the devil can set up strongholds once again in our life if we allow him to do that? So, amen. So what we've got to do is we've got to, we've got to be vigilant, take action, and make sure that we mortify the enemy every time he attempts to exert control in our life. If you have your Bibles, I want you to flip over to... Um, Oh, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians chapter 5, verse number 1 says this, For, for freedom Christ has set us free. Another, I think NIV says it this way, It is for freedom that Jesus Christ, that Christ has set us free. So stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Do you see that that's exactly what Israel did time and time again? They had been, they had conquered that land. Hazor had been conquered. 
And yet they, they failed to stand firm, and because of that, they were submitted again and again to yokes of slavery in, in their life. And Paul warns us as believers about that same thing. He says, Jesus Christ has set you free. He has delivered you. He has it is for freedom that Jesus Christ has set you free. And then he warns us, so stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We must refuse to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. Can you say amen? We must learn to resist the devil when he comes against us. And we must learn to mortify our flesh, crucify our flesh so that we can remain in the freedom that Jesus Christ has purchased for us. JL is, is our example that when we have the opportunity, we need to mortify the enemy in our life and exert control, the control that Jesus Christ has given uh, to us. John Owens, who is a Puritan theologian, said it this way, and it's one of my favorite quotes about this subject. John Owen says, we must always be killing sin or sin will be killing us. You see that we as believers, we're locked in that, we're locked in that struggle. Thankfully, we have received the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to do it through our own might and through our own power. But the Holy Spirit that operates in us, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can mortify sin in our life and we can exert the freedom and stand in the freedom that Jesus Christ has given to us. But how many knows it takes us doing something? It takes us taking the initiative to serve the Lord with all of our strength and with all of our heart. We can't be content to sit back and do nothing. I mentioned earlier that Kadesh's only other claim to fame is that they were one of the first ones <laughs> to fall and to be exiled when Assyria invaded Israel. Now, obviously part of that's because of their location on the border, the northern border uh, of Israel. But maybe it also is the fact that they put up very little defense against the invading army. Friends, I don't want to be like Kadesh. I don't want to be, I don't want to easily fall to the enemies that Jesus Christ has already purchased the victory that I can have victory over. I want to stand firm in the freedom that Jesus Christ has given to me. Can you say amen? That means that, that we can't just sit back and do nothing. We have to take the initiative. Leaders lead, and they lead themselves first of all. Amen? So I want you to bow your head and close your eyes this evening, if you would. Mike, if you'd come to the piano. And we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. And Father, we're going to ask you tonight, Lord, if there's any complacency in us, if there's any apathy, Lord, in our life, we're asking that right now, God, you would expose that to us, Lord. Show it to us for what it is, God. If we've become too comfortable, if we've become too content, Lord, in our experience, 
then Lord, we pray that you would show that to us this evening. If we have, if we are not resisting the devil to the extent, Lord, that we ought to, if we're allowing him to establish strongholds in our mind or strongholds in our life, then God, we pray that you'll help us not to sit back and do nothing, but that tonight, Lord, we'll take the initiative that we'll confront, that we'll confront the enemy with the power of the Holy Spirit and that God will begin to mortify the works of the enemy, that we'll refuse to let sin reign in our bodies, that we'll resist the devil, that we'll submit ourselves to you, that we'll crucify our flesh so that we might live by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening today. If you have any questions or would like more information about following Jesus Christ, please contact us at gladtidings.church. If you live near Dunn, North Carolina, please consider visiting our church on Sunday mornings at 1030. You can also download our church app in the iTunes or Google Play app store and receive updates and notifications. You may use the app to make a financial gift to help support our ministry. God bless you.